Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Rashid. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks. And today's pin is a uh, two women who say vote. And you'll see why that's so relevant to our conversation today. Secretaries of State are on the front lines of protecting our democracy and voting rights. In fact, so much so that Republicans in 2020 targeted secretaries of state across the nation because they know the power they had in the administration of elections and defending democracy. Luckily, the secretaries of state who were targeted did not cave in. So more than ever before, we need responsible, principled, and committed secretaries of state who will protect our democracy and elections. Today, we are going to be talking with one of those secretaries of state who has witnessed firsthand the assault on democracy in Michigan and is actively working to defend it in 2024 and beyond. And she is Michigan's Secretary of State, Jocelyn Benson. She has done so many incredible things in her life that uh, if I listed them all, it would take the entire time of our podcast. But there were so many fascinating ones that I did want to mention some. And of course, before she was Secretary of State, um, and I recommend you read her Wikipedia page because that will include many more of them. And you'll see how interesting she is. Um, But she has done a lot of research on neo-Nazis and white supremacist organizations as a Marshall Scholar at Oxford. She worked at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and she also worked at the Southern Poverty Law Center in Alabama. And as an intern for the incredible judge, um, who I was lucky enough to have a trials, many trials in front of Damon Keith, and she interned for Nina Totenberg who is also one of my favorite people ever. So she has done so many interesting things. She's won the John F. Kennedy Profiles in Courage Award and was given the uh, Civilian Award by President Biden. So we are just really excited to have you with us today. And thank you very much, Secretary Benson, for being with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great to be here with you both and um, great admirers of you you're both and all the work that you both do. So thank you for everything you do to make this world a better place, both of you and and for this podcast to educate people about how they can do the same. Oh, we hope we hope we accomplish that. And we know that our conversation with you will definitely help. Um, well, go ahead, so, Victor. Well, let's get right into it because um, we, we come here a week, uh, I guess, less than a week after um, your state's um, Attorney General Dana Wessel issued indictments against 16 um, fake electors from 2020. Tell us more about what they're charged with and just how significant this is for accountability nationwide. Yeah, it's really a big deal. I think it's something that has been um, we're, you know, in the works for a number of years. These felony charges that were filed against 16 individuals who allegedly knowingly sought to defraud the government, the state and federal government through submitting fake electoral vote certificates with the goal of undoing the actual legitimate uh, elector certificates and having their fake elector certificates submitted to Congress on what was January 6, 2021. So it was part of really a national coordinated effort to undo the will of the people simply because they and others in their political party and as well as the former president were unhappy with the outcome of the election. Uh, so as you know as we now begin to enter the 2024 cycle, it's really important that we see accountability and justice for those who were part of 
this nationally coordinated effort and this actionable plan to subvert the will of the people in the last presidential election. Because if we don't see these types of charges brought and indictments and accountability uh, and uh, in the legal process, then we have to prepare, especially those of us as election administrators, for a repeat of these actions again. So, um, so I was gratified to learn of the felony charges that Attorney General Nessel filed. Uh, I We were the first state to see these state charges. I fully expect we will not be the last. Uh, but either way, uh, all proceedings at the state and federal level are just looking at facts and evidence and uh, in the law. And in this case, the Attorney General found an, an abundance of evidence of guilt, and that's why she went forward with the charges. So I'm glad you mentioned that you think it's going to go beyond Michigan because we know that there were fake electors slates submitted uh, from many other states. And we also have reason to believe that it is one of the things that Special Counsel Smith is now looking at indictments for. So you set your, your state set a very good model for what needs to be done for uh, election accountability. And I, I guess one question is, how high up do you think the fraud goes? I mean, we have seen the indictments in Michigan of the people who signed the forms, some of whom are now saying, oh, we were tricked into it. We signed a blank sheet of paper and they forced onto these counter. But um, do you know of any evidence that would link it to the war room or directly to the president? The former there, president. Yeah. I mean, there have been um, some publicly disclosed pieces of evidence, voicemails from the Trump campaign to state officials and the like. Uh, we know there were meetings. We know Rudy Giuliani himself was in the state of Michigan a few days before uh, the electors officially met uh, and uh, testified before a sort of sham legislative hearing um, about with false claims of election fraud. So there's a lot of smoke. And part of the investigation process, which often happens behind the scenes and out of the public's eye, is to get into, sort through the, sift through the smoke and see what's underneath it all. I think I have a lot of confidence in the investigators in our state to get to the bottom of and, and make all the connections. And I'm grateful that folks at the federal level are looking at this too, because they could make those similar connections. But I do think, to me, um, it's important to seek full accountability, but not just put this in the on the shoulders of one person, the former president. We know certainly he was, a, you know, a central piece to a lot of different things, and hence the indictments that you see pre and post <laughs> this moment um, uh, percolating. But that said, uh, there were a number of other, it would seem, co-conspirators at every level. And I think when we talk about accountability, we have to see full accountability for everyone who was involved in this really unprecedented, un-American scheme to overturn a presidential election because some a small group of people, including the former president, were unhappy with the results. Yeah, let's turn specifically to Michigan now. And and because you, I, I've heard you talk about this before, but we often talk about January 6th as a lone incident, but the reality is that it took a lot of planning before January 6th to make that all possible and continued long after. I'm wondering how soon after the election did the Trump team begin trying to overturn Michigan's election results? You know, it's so interesting because leading into the election, we anticipated disruption. Uh, and we anticipated seeds being planted throughout the voting process and the counting process that could give rise to post-election challenges. What we underestimated was just how far people were willing to go 
in those post-election challenges to time and time again, try every tactic, pull every lever possible to block the results of the election from coming to fruition up to and until and including the, the tragedy at our Capitol on January 6th. So for, from a Michigan standpoint, and again, at this, this moment, right after the polls closed on election night, uh, we were already anticipating from the time between the polls closed to the time the unofficial results were announced in Michigan and in other states, that the former president would use that space to sow seeds of doubt about the results. And so we were already countering that, but we thought it would stop after the unofficial results were done. We certainly thought it would stop after the official results were certified. But what we saw instead was an escalation and every step of the way up again until the, you know, the, the, the ultimate escalation in, in January 6th. And so it was a, it was a slow burn that frankly began in the spring of 2020 and uh, our challenge sort of was, again, we thought it would end after the election, but it really just was getting started. It was probably the Friday. I mean, I would say, so our results were announced 24 hours, but then the polls closed on Wednesday around four or five. Uh, at that point, we started to see an escalation of the tax on election officials in Detroit uh, with protests outside where um, they were wrapping up the counting of the absentee ballots in the city. And then things just escalated from there. The spotlight in some ways turned to other states at that point, Pennsylvania, Nevada, Arizona, who hadn't yet revealed their results um, or finished counting their results. But um, it then sort of turned back to Michigan through the certification process the following week, because we were the first state to go through the local certification. And that's when we started to see the pressure on local officials to block certification after the fact. And of course, it hasn't ended even now, because the big lie continues repeatedly, having not just Trump, but all of his acolytes saying the election was stolen, I won it. And to me, it's completely unbelievable. Um, It also seems to me that there was a targeted effort in Michigan in certain counties, Mm -hmm. and that those counties were counties with heavy minority populations. Uh, is that a correct interpretation of where the targeting was? Sure, not just in Michigan, but it was Detroit, Milwaukee, Atlanta, Philadelphia, Phoenix. I mean, in every one of the swing states where we saw, um, you know, the six battleground states, it was the the urban center where communities of color were concentrated. Where you saw initially uh, the um, attempts to call out fraud, you know, falsely were targeted. Again, when you don't have any evidence of fraud, then just, you know, <laughs> I guess go towards the the minority communities and start, you know, using racism to sow seeds of doubt, which was clearly a strategy. And then, um, you know, they just started picking apart other things and it became a sort of free for all to uh, throwing accusations every which way. Um, but, but certainly it was those cities, Philadelphia, Milwaukee, Arizona, uh, Phoenix, Atlanta, Detroit, that started it. And um, where we saw, and, and I think, again, we should expect for the future to see challenges arise. I'm, I'm reading an advanced copy of my sister's-in-law book mm. by Barb McQuaid, which is about disinformation, misinformation. And what you're describing is all out of the authoritarian's handbook, you know, lie and lie loud and lie often, and then people believe it and it's hard to disprove and you create the chaos. Mm-hmm. It's it's really terrifying to hear how everything she's talking about from Hitler, Stalin, et cetera, is 
what you experienced. And did you personally get any threats? I mean, I think you've had to have special protections since then. What what happened to you personally? Yeah, we all did. Um, you know, the, the Detroit city clerk had someone show up outside of her home and she had COVID at the time when she like, weaponized. Oh. <laughs> it's like this amazing story of how she confronted him. And, uh, um, but yeah, the, um, I mean, people famously showed up outside my home and uh, a few days after Giuliani was in our state, uh, levying false allegations of fraud. Then they showed up outside my home in the dark of night around nine o'clock with bullhorns shouting for me to come outside and show myself and saying all these other things and turn myself in. And that um, it was awful. Um, the interesting thing about that was it was um, they Facebook lived it, which created a video of it. Yeah. And that meant, meant it's like to this day, I'm doing interviews on MSNBC and they'll show the video of my house under siege. And it's always just difficult to relive that moment, but in some ways it's become more infamous. I mean, again, hundreds of election officials have, have been challenged and received these threats, but mine, I think, took, um, because you had visuals and the yeah. atrocity of seeing people stand outside of, you know, a, a home of a mom with a four-year-old inside in the middle of winter, which it just, it shows how appalling it was. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, but at the same time, and if, when things were happening in that moment, I I just didn't want anyone to know. I was just trying to do my job. I didn't want yeah. footage to be out there. I didn't, you know, it was tough to see that. And so it's become something I've had to live with now to, you know, my home is in like the congressional record from the chamber because <laughs> they again showed the footage then. And, yeah. uh, but at the same time, it just shows how extraordinary uh, this effort was and how, um, how uh i don't know devious it was to to try to just go as far as to you know invade a mom's the home of a mom with a kid yeah. because they didn't like the results of the election and were being fed lies about that election they it's were deluded lies. they yeah. were deluded really how, sad. yeah I mean, how do you how do you keep on kind of going forward and, and i guess how do you talk to like your your children about this i mean it, it's so uh, I guess what makes the far right so different from anything that we see anywhere else is, I mean, they're willing to go that far and they don't care if it disrupts a family. How do you have those conversations with, with your children? It's the same way we have them with anyone, which is just honesty and forthrightness. I mean, my son is now seven. He just turned seven. He's very aware now of my work and, and just for as many people as there are, and I've tried to explain to him, not everyone is is happy about mom's work, um, even though it's, you know, and I had explained to him why um, and what it's connected to. Uh, he also sees the other side of it, which is, you know, when you defend, when the majority of people of Michigan or elsewhere are on the side of democracy, on the side of the election results, because they were the majority of voters in the election, you, you always have to remember that the majority of people are on your side. The vast majority of people are on the side of democracy and the truth and the law and history is all on our side. And so throughout this process, whether it's to my son or uh, to my staff and my team, we keep reminding each other of that. And it's become a great way to teach my son that standing up for what you believe in does require you to be courageous and unflinching in the face of those who would try to stop you from doing your work. Uh, and that uh, you built, you surround yourself with a strong supportive family to march forward anyway. And, and that is how American history has progressed since its inception by that type of decision and work. You can definitely tell your son that Victor and I 
appreciate everything you did. And it's not just Victor and I, that there are more people in America who believe that you did a brave and good thing and that you will continue to do so, whatever that is. And in that connection, I understand that you were subpoenaed to the special counsel's uh, office um, or that you at least appeared there. Um, And I don't want to push you to answer anything that you can't answer, but is there anything you can tell us about the types of things that you were asked and whether it was the grand jury or just an office interview? I think a lot of the substance is, is, um, you know, uh, has already been out in the public through the January 6th committee hearings, which were really a comprehensive investigation on their own and from a legislative standpoint into not just the lies that were told and the attempts and all the different levers that were pulled legally and illegally or attempts that were made to overturn the election results, but the violence that resulted in them and, and the lives that were you know irrevocably impacted as a result in every level around this country. And so make connecting all those dots, which is what we would hope federal investigators do, um, it, you know, I think is what we could expect is, is happening at the Justice Department. Uh, and just as things have proceeded at the state level, looking at the facts and the law and, and if, if, if folks have violated the law to such an extent that there was an effort to almost a successful effort to block the will of the people from coming to fruition, uh, then there needs to be accountability for that. Regardless of who's in charge of the Justice Department at this particular moment, we have to expect that accountability. And that's, I think, in many ways what we're seeing. So, you know, I and my colleagues, I was not the only one in Michigan that was interviewed. Um, We know by the special counsel, we're all here to tell our story of what we witnessed in 2020, in the hopes that we won't have to go through it again. And and that's why it was so important to meet with the special counsel and any other law enforcement officers doing this work. Any insight into timing for the release of anything from the special counsel? Mm, no, nor should I. Um, you know, my job is just to tell my story. And I know, and I'm sure they're talking to officials. I think it's been reported in many other states as well. And so that's what we do. And then we let the, you know, the law enforcement officers at the federal level do their job. Right. So yeah. we mentioned at the top of the episode that you um, researched um, white supremacy groups and organizations when you were um, studying abroad. And, and that's so relevant to our conversation today because those are also the same people who are likely to support Trump. And based off of everything that you've looked into and studied from those groups, what should we and our listeners know about how those groups operate? And also, perhaps more importantly, kind of how far Trump has tapped into that and kind of the movement that he's, he has spurred um, from these white supremacist kind of organizations and, and, and groups. I think it's hard to say specifically because the undercover work I did was 20, more than 20 years ago, and it was both throughout this country and, and abroad. Uh, but what I saw then were, I think, two things. One, um, that uh, the web of connections between uh, in the organization of the neo-Nazi and, and white supremacist organizations uh, and that network is actually well connected, uh, especially through social media now. And this was just in the late 90s, early beginning, but the internet really has created a breeding ground for both misinformation and um, the extremism that it gives rise to. And, and it's, I think, just you know multiplied now. And then when on top of that, you have President of the United States validating some of that connectivity or the philosophy and ideology behind it to further his own political ends. And, you know, who knows what he believes, but that is really frightening because it starts to, it starts to signal as this sort of his famous statement of, you know, stand by uh, proud boys at the 
debate sort of indicated, it sends a signal of, of acceptance. And uh, when, when every official in our country, Republican or Democrat, anywhere in between should be rejecting this sort of deeply rooted racist ideology and neo-Nazi ideology that has caused globally and in our country so much um, uh, violence and division throughout our history. And then the second thing I'll add is, you know, I did this work both um, in Alabama and also abroad and the connectivity, you can't underestimate the connectivity to the actual like descendants of Nazi movement that still is though underground, a part of the work in Europe. Uh, I was really, when I was, and again, this was, you know, in the late nineties. So what, you know, 40, 50 years after world war II, the wounds were still fresh. The organization, you know, the, the things just didn't just poof, go away after the end of the second world war, that hatred, that organ, you know, the, the ideology of Nazism and there's descendants of it still. Um, and variants, I guess you could say of it still, uh, very present in Europe that you could trace back to actual, the actual Nazi movement in Germany. And, and so I don't think we should underestimate that connection either into anti-Semitism and, and everything else. And, um, and instead, and again, this is up to the work of the investigators at every level tracking these groups, draw all the connections we can between governments, between governments that support this ideology, between elected fit, you know, it's all, there's a lot more connectivity amongst those seemingly fringe elements of society than many of us would want to know or realize. That's very frightening. But do you think that there's been any positive impact in weakening any of the local groups, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, because of the convictions for seditious conspiracy of their leaders? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I think what I came to see is this sort of omnipresence of that ideology that will manifest itself through organizations that will then go defunct, as many did. A lot of the leaders and organizations that I was tracking in the late 90s are now gone. Um, however, the internet and others have given rise to new new organizations all rooted in that same ideology. And so it, it's hard to know. It's 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 like it's a it's a vapor that never is fully um, extinguished right. and then becomes empowered and amplified in different ways. And certainly the former president Trump um, amplified that in a, in a unprecedented way in modern times. And so I don't think, you know, that, that I've, I see no indication that convictions will do anything other than perhaps create a rise of martyrdom, um, which, you know, when I was doing the investigations, it was right after Oklahoma city. And even then with Timothy McVeigh and, uh, you know, there was a rise of martyrdom and an or sort of organizational use of those convictions that, got other people who didn't feel connected to society to sign up and get involved. And, and so you, you have to recognize that potential effect still seek justice anyway, but at the same time, sometimes it can be used as an organizing tool uh, to get more people um, angry and upset and engaged. Or a fundraising tool. We've seen that happen. Yep. Yeah. And the, the interesting, the, 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 the gut wrenching thing and interesting thing about this moment is to see U S senators raising yeah. money off of this, not just a former president, but it's become a political tactic an accepted political tactic by members of a dominant party in this country. And that is something we haven't really seen since the days of George Wallace 
And, and so that's terrifying to me. And I don't, I think the only way that ends is by uh, voters continuing to reject those elected officials across the board. And we haven't fully seen that everywhere yet. We've seen many states mm-hmm. know that it's become almost like a rite of passage in order to get elected. You have to adopt this ideology now. And, and, and it's, um, it's really, it's what the, it's the battle line right now. This is, this is the battle that we're fighting. Well, I, I think that's a good segue into talking about your state as a model for every state in America, you know, people going out to the ballot box and voting and rejecting this kind of extremism and ideology. I mean, you went from, you know, red to purple to solid blue at the top now with Governor Whitmer, with A.G. Wessel, with yourself all being women. Can you talk about that and what it feels like and looks like and is translated into in Michigan? Yeah, it's been, I mean, I think the story in Michigan has has been sort of both on about voters rising up and really being engaged and through constitutional amendments, taking charge of their government, putting citizens in charge of drawing district lines, expanding early voting and no reason absentee voting and automatic voter registration. Everything you're seeing other states, Minnesota, Pennsylvania, New Mexico, do through their legislatures, our citizens did it. And that preceded the election or coincided with the election of all of us, of a really diverse governing leadership body that includes not just women, but people of color as well. And our first African-American speaker of the house, our first African-American lieutenant governor, our first female Senate majority leader, women by and large leading the state Supreme Court. So it, it shows by and large what happens when a lot of people vote and when you actually democratize democracy so that more people young, you know, Michigan leads the country in the number of young people who are in our state, right? So what happens as a result of that, you see this plethora of leadership that looks more like America. And we're still not there yet, but we've got we've gotten pretty far in a short amount of time, like five years in transforming our democracy and then transforming the policies that come out of that, which I think for all of us who do this work of mobilizing voters and, um, and fighting for democracy should find enormously gratifying because it shows if democracy works, then everything else actually does um, become possible. So that's, to me, that's been my lived experience here in Michigan, that sort of beauty of what an expanded democracy can, can bring. And then as a part of that, the women leading Michigan um, have this impact of emboldening each other, supporting each other. We're genuine friends. As I look forward to, you know, future opportunities to lead, I think about how, you know, we'll, we'll, we may never have this sisterhood again that we have in our state in a way that has made my job a joy because we're we're colleagues, we're a team. And you don't always see that among executive offices in a state like that, even if you're in the same party. Well, Michigan has become a model, a role model, both in terms of going from red to purple to maybe blue and to being led by the three top positions are all women. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I when I started practicing law, only 4% of all lawyers were female. I had no female colleagues. I had no mentors or anybody to talk to. And it's only more recently um, when I moved to Chicago and there's an organization called the Chicago Network Hmm. where I found people at my level who were all female and had the same thing you're talking about, which is that sisterhood of, gee, I have an HR problem. I don't know exactly how to handle it, but- I know someone who's the head of HR at a big corporation. I can call them. So mm-hmm. you are lucky to have the wonderful uh, setup that you have, and but you created it. You made it happen. Is oh, there anything that you've learned that 
we can mm. pass along to other states. You know, it must feel great to be part of that, as you've said, but how can we make other states resemble Michigan? Get more people voting. It's yeah. the number one thing. And and have them vote in districts that they can, as citizens, draw themselves. That's it. And yeah. um, because it was a direct result of these pro-voter policies. I mean, of course, you know, 2016 was a lesson as well. We had extraordinarily low turnout in our state. People took the election for granted, all of those things. And so, you know, we learned our lesson and our voters learned our lesson and we've not seen such a dip in turnout sets. And that's a really great story. It really is also a story of, of, of defining an election and defining leadership through the very simple lens of the job of government and the job of us is to protect the rights and freedoms of every citizen in our state and fight for them. That's it. I mean, it, it sort of, you know, you bring out, you know, the opportunity to earn a living wage and have good health care and all of the rest that sort of flow from that. But it's really about freedom, freedom over our bodies, freedom over our rights, freedom to live the life we want to live and love who we want to love and, 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 you know, go to school and, um, and thrive in our economy. And so it's, um, it's all connected and having a message that women can, I think, uniquely deliver because, or, you know, or frankly, any any candidate who has or any person who represents a community who has lost rights and has had to fight for rights and is under, has found those rights in this moment under attack has a unique role to play in leading right now. And I think voters have really responded to that. So I think in other states, certainly like engaging voters, the, the states where you see pro-voter policies being enacted into law, you will start to see, I believe, diverse um, thriving coalitions in this in that are represent what a multiracial democracy looks like. The unfortunate thing is that you've got just as many states diminishing their voting rights and in, in, in how that's going to impact people is very differently. And that's where you need communities like in Mississippi, like in Wyoming, in West Virginia, communities who have found themselves on the losing end of, 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 of anti-voter policies to rise up and demand change and, you know, like the, the, the Tennessee three are doing and, you know, really just demanding to be heard and demanding um, democracy. So it's it's sort of long way of saying that the path forward is different based on where the state is starting from, but it always is about the voters. It's always about, and, and young people and voters of color really leading the way because that is our story in Michigan ultimately and that is what has enabled us to get to a point where we have policies that truly do work for everyone. Your your state is amazing, but some of the things you mentioned made me think of what's happening with Alabama saying, yeah. no, Supreme Court, I'm ignoring you. I am not going to redraw the map the way you said we have to. What what What's going on there and what can we or the citizens of Alabama do to mm. make that not be the case, to make them follow the law? Uh, it's, it's, it's a scenario in which you need the legal system to work. And you have, I mean, Alabama in particular has a history of bad elected officials violating the law and then new federal laws actually get created like the Voting Rights Act to compel those officials to do the right thing. And even then, like in this case, they still refuse. And that's, I mean, I think it gets back to in part connectivity and recognize that we're actually not that disconnected from the injustices of the past, even in the injustices of the last 75 years. And uh, and so recognizing that the work, we can find the lessons in those who've overcome those injustices in these last 75 years, organizing, shining a light on the injustice, 
calling it out so that they can't get away with it behind closed doors or behind legalese and other types of legal maneuvering. Uh, And that I think is really important to shine a light on the injustices, the wrong decisions, the violations of of the fabric of who we should be as Americans and the fabric of who we are uh, and organize around it and then vote accordingly. And know that you're not always going to succeed. I mean, the, the mayor of Selma in 1965, who was there when John Lewis and others stood on the foot of the Edmund Pettus Bridge, was still there, even though he ignored them. And he was still mayor until like 1998. So, you know, you're not always going to see that electoral success, but you can see policy success. You can see federal government success. And you've got folks like Terry Sewell and great voices, even like Doug Jones coming out of Alabama, who can be, you know, forceful advocates as well with voters. But it all starts with voters not giving up and demanding better uh, and uh, and realizing the power they have ultimately to get results, which is what history teaches us is the only thing that actually makes democracy work better. So you, I want to go back to um, a comment you made about Michigan and, and young people, because I think a lot about youth voters and, and young people. And, you know, one of the things that I hope other uh, states and colleges learn from is from uh, college campuses like UMich and Michigan State, where you had so many young people go out there and vote and really institutionalize voting, which I thought was amazing. But you also had a role in that, I'm assuming, as Secretary of State. And I'm wondering if you can talk more about that and how you've brought young people into the fold and what your kind of role is going to be in 2024 in not only administering elections, but also, um, oh, I think we may have lost her. Oh. Well, let's have a little conversation while hopefully she yes, yes. rejoins us. Yes. The perils of live recording. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. That we live, things, <laughs> things go wrong. Yes, uh, yes. So far fabulous conversation. So I hope we get her back. Really interesting. Um, and, and, you know, we have many more questions about um, democracy, about her role as Secretary of State, and even some lighter topics, because um, we mentioned so much about her biography, and there's a lot yeah. more to learn. So we are excited to talk about that. I hope we don't have to reveal the reveal. <laughs> if we get to ask her about it. That would be yes, the best. Yes, yes. Uh, we'll see. Um, um, and she's been involved in a lot of activities, including one with Sandra Day O'Connor that we want to talk about yes. in terms of one of your particular areas of interest, which is both um, of ours. Well, well, yeah, you. I mean, it's a long time ago for me, but more recent for you about civics. You, do you want to um, maybe try taking a uh, texting her? Yes. I'm right now, as we are talking, I'm texting her assistant. Um, but I know we were, um, um, we were thinking of maybe talking about something at the end, but maybe we can just talk about, you know, this moment, because I think a lot of what we were going to say is, you know, the tax on education and kind of this this moment of democracy. And we can even tie it back to this movement of white nationalism, things like happening in Florida. I mean, what do you make of what Ron DeSantis is doing um, down in Florida, saying that somehow slaves, enslaved people benefited from slavery personally? And then yesterday on Fox News, you had... Greg Gutfield saying that somehow Jewish people benefited personally from the Holocaust. And which when you first texted me that, Victor, I thought, oh, you're joking because there was a joke. I, I that may be the wrong word. There was a joke oh, about um if Jewish joke people survived. Okay, we'll we'll finish that conversation yes, yes, afterwards. afterwards. Let's let's go back to the important stuff. 
Yes, yes. Welcome well, I, back. Um, welcome back, Secretary <laughs> Vance. I'm not sure how much you heard, but basically I was asking, I mean, you're, we were talking about young voters and, and getting people more involved in democracy. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about your role um, in expanding democracy and expanding voting rights, but also, you know, right before the conversation, we were talking about this new um, mobile setup that you have in Flint and hopefully what that'll do in registering people to vote. But talk about your role as Secretary of State in 2024 and um, not only protecting Michigan's democracy and elections, but also hopefully expanding um, and making voting more accessible and easy for people. Yeah, well, one of the things we do, and you know, again, Michigan's proud to lead the nation in, in youth vote turnout, but we're still at you know, 39%, uh, which is far below where we should be and where I would want to see the, the generation that is set to inherit our democracy um, serving in a moment or participating in a moment where we desperately need their voices and their input. And so that said, we have invited young people all across the state to be part of the first ever Youth and College Student Advisory Council in our office that works with my team to basically say, this is what we need to get our friends and uh, community members voting and participating. And, you know, they've come up with things like, let's have a drop box on every college campus. Let's have in large campuses, actual clerk's offices where students can register and vote on election day. Uh, one of the things I want to work with our college campuses to mandate, uh, college presidents to mandate, is registering all eligible voters when they register for classes. So if, if a student's moving to Michigan and wants to be registered to vote, they, they can do that moving uh, upon registering for classes. That also ensures that people are in the system registered and get information about voting whenever there's an election day upon us. So there's a number of different policies that we have developed through really just listening and working with college students and, and empowering them to tell us what they need on their campuses or other communities to be able to participate. Uh, we also partner with community colleges and other places where young people already are and uh, and bring government to them, uh, which, you know, lo and behold, is what all the research shows actually does generate more engagement of young voters. It helps that we also have these policies, automatic voter registration, election day registration, absentee voting, early voting that make it more convenient than ever for citizens, all citizens to participate in our elections. But that the heart of our work to engage young people is listening and bringing them into the process and enabling them to really determine how we build a system that is responsive and embracing every voice in that community. Excellent. I, we think we agree with you completely. And it also is the same thing that President Obama said um, right after he left office, he spoke to the Economic Club in Chicago and said, the most important thing is to be informed, get involved mm -hmm. and get out the vote. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, making it easier to register and to vote is part of helping to get out the vote. So thank you for that. You also, and this goes to one of Victor's and my favorite subjects is you have been involved in a civics education program with Sandra Day O'Connor, um, and it was an app founded by her for civics education. Could you talk about that and what other secretaries of state elsewhere could do to make this a reality? Because without civics education, I'm afraid people don't even know there are three branches of government and that the Supreme Court is not the final decision on making policy. They get to decide certain questions. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's really critical to see a citizen as a voter, not just when they turn 18, 
but really start cultivating and encouraging that civic participation long before they become eligible to vote. And in Michigan, working with high schools and other educational institutions and even middle schools to have mock elections and other types of things will help and has helped us engage more pre-voters, uh, voters-to-be in the process. Um, but it's something we all can do. Uh, and it's something that can even begin as far early as elementary school, really teaching young people the power of their voice, the importance of engagement, and what they get out of it, so that it instills in them early, an early sense of participation and connectivity, and also power uh, through their own voice. And so there's a variety of educational materials that are available. iCivics has developed a whole plethora of games that mm -hmm. citizens and young people in the process of being a Supreme Court justice or being a lawmaker at an early age that they can also get to see how that process works and also enables them to connect lawmaking to the change they want to see in their communities. If you don't like a certain food at the uh, that's available for lunches, well, organize and raise your voices and make that change. And even by small, tangible victories like that, that really, again, demonstrably improve school life or their, their, their life, they can start to see the impact of their voice. And so I think lesson modules that help connect power and voice and change and do it around issues that kids or young people are really focused on at every age, uh, we can then enter a scenario where by the time they turn 18, they see the official side of political engagement as a critical part of their livelihood. Uh, for me, I'm the daughter of two special education teachers. And so I saw at a really young age how important it is for teachers to have support that they need at every level um, to be able to teach what they want to teach mm -hmm. and provide the support for their students that they so want to provide. And so I became kind of an early advocate, like middle school for teachers, because it was, you know, my parents that I, I wanted to see have a better opportunity to uh, improve the lives of others. So I think, again, that we all know, I mean, there's plenty of research that shows that sort of our, our citizenry develops at a very early age. And I think the more education we can provide kids at every level of learning, uh, the more it prepares them to be a lifelong citizens in a democracy. Which takes us back to the curriculum in Florida that shouldn't be. Yeah. <laughs> Teachers should right. be free to teach facts. But, but yeah. I also want to go to something that just fascinated me and a little bit more on the lighter side. But um, And that is that according to what I read, you run at least one or two marathons every year, mm -hmm. including running one when you were eight months pregnant. Something that I just, I, I can't even imagine. But talk about that experience. How did you do that? It's all the same thing, one foot after the other. <laughs> Just like, that's if it was I, that easy, I would be running marathons too. Training <laughs> <laughs> and preparing and all of that too, and putting in the time, putting in the work. But anytime we want to take on a big challenge, whatever it could be, big or small, physical or not, it engages, it, we, respond, you know, we have to take one step at a time. My mentor, Judge Keith, always said, you, you, you eat an elephant one bite at a time. <laughs> and, uh, it's, it was the same thing, running a marathon actually reminds me that, you know, things are possible that you could never even quite imagine when you begin the process, but you get to the impossible by doing what is possible one step at a time. And that's really a lesson for everything that we as change makers want to see, whether, you know, we'd be activists, lawyers, organizers. Um, and, uh, and so I think that to me really is what running and being a marathoner teaches me in a very physical way that, you know, I may, I have, I have run 
close to 30 marathons, I get teary-eyed before every single one, no matter what, no matter how prepared I think I am, I get very emotional because you start to doubt yourself. Can I really do this? Can I really, really run? And, and that's a lesson that once you do it, you know, it always sees, it seems impossible until it's done. Even if you, even if it seems like the path is laid out for you. And, and that's a really important like, reminder in an almost meditative way to have in every aspect of if when you're trying to change things on for the greater good. So that's why marathon are truly, because it reminds me who I want to be and what I hope to accomplish and how, you know, to fight through the hard times and the difficult times in order to get to the other side. Wow. That is such good advice. And we always ask our guests, um, you know, advice for the younger listeners. And I think that was it. That's like the perfect advice. (laughs) Secretary Benson, thank you so much for joining us today. It was so great chatting with you. Oh, it's always great to be with you both. Thank you for having me on. And I hope we can talk again soon. Oh, I yes, will definitely. definitely ask you to come back. You were great. Thank you, <laughs> so, right. much. Thank you so much. Guys, see you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, Joe. Bye-bye. Okay, well, that was a great episode. Um, we're going to end it here because my computer is unfortunately really close to dying. So thank you everyone for watching this episode of iGen Politics. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Hold on. Uh, I'm getting the warning that my computer is about to die. So okay. thank you for watching and we will see you next week. You'll have to hear my story about the um, uh, what I was going to say yes. next, next time. Yes. yes. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>